0: That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M.com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Peter Kraus, the chairman and CEO of Aperture Investors, a $5 billion asset manager he founded after a storied four-decade career on Wall Street including heading the investment management division at Goldman Sachs and serving as chairman and CEO of Alliance Bernstein. Throughout his career, Peter has been a vocal proponent of pay-for-performance compensation models and the need for trust between active managers and their clients. He ultimately decided that a successful culture of performance-linked fees that properly aligns the manager and client could only occur in a new firm built from scratch he teamed up with Italian Bank Generali to launch Aperture in 2018. Our conversation covers Peter's career at Goldman Sachs and Alliance Bernstein, the structural problem of incentives in the asset management industry, and Peter's attempt to disrupt that structure. We then discuss his process for selecting managers on Aperture's platform, including screening, due diligence, and the nuances in idea generation, track record, value systems, and managing teams. Please enjoy my first meeting with Peter Kraus of Aperture Investors. Peter, great to see you. Good to see you, thanks for having me. Well, I know you've had a long career in asset management and thought maybe we would start how you first got interested in investing. Well, in part,
1: a little bit the family. My father was a broker in a firm then called Baych Company. And I had an early interest in stocks and bonds and financial matters. And the most significant epiphany in my early life, though, was I think in 11th grade, I convinced the principal of my high school to give me a closet, essentially. It had no windows. It did have a door. And in the closet, I basically wrote down or created charts for many different stocks and recorded the daily price movements. And so I had the high and the low and the midpoint and where it closed and volume. And then I created these charts over years and looked at mean reversion and technical analysis to try to determine what stock prices were gonna do. And I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by the numbers. I was fascinated by the financials. I was fascinated by the behavioral aspects of stocks and bonds and markets. And that behavioral context, that behavioral theme became something that actually captivated me even in college. And my thesis for my degree was, actually trying to identify when investor behavior changed stock prices. And I was basically talking about fear and greed. And I tried to build a utility curve and a mathematical construct for measuring when fear or greed was gonna drive stock prices and drive the market. Of course, I'm not sure I was particularly successful at it, but (laughs) the professors definitely thought it was interesting. And as one professor said to me many, many years later, he said, you know, you were early on in behavioral finance. It didn't exist in 1973. Yeah. <laughs> but I was very interested in how humans could affect stock prices beyond the fundamentals of the company. And ultimately, there was mean reversion, either stock prices going up or stock prices coming down, to basically get to that fundamental value. And I had been thinking about that really since I was in college. That sort of created a early base for – thinking about markets and thinking about where returns were and thinking about where alpha was.
0: So when you had that early interest, and now you're going through college, you're finishing college, how does that infiltrate into your job search process?
1: Well, I would say I wish that I had much more planning insight in my job <laughs> process, but I didn't. <laughs> I graduated a little bit early from school. I didn't have a job. My father said to me, gee, it'd be nice if you had a job. I said, yeah, that'd probably be a good idea. I did want to go to business school, but the business school opportunity was deferred two years and I didn't want to wait. So I got a job at Pete, Mark, and Mitchell. It was an accounting firm. And they had a very interesting program for liberal arts candidates. They um, sent you to NYU at night and you could get your MS in accountancy or an MBA if you chose to. I chose to get an MBA. And in two years' time, and I finished in 18 months, you get an MBA and your CPA and get two years of experience at an accounting firm. And that sounded like a good idea. Better, it started in June, and I could go to Europe for six months. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was not the Machiavellian part. <laughs> so that's what I did.
0: What was that travel experience like in Europe right out of college? Well, of course,
1: I had a backpack, and I had, I think, $300. And I stayed in the southern part of Europe, which was the cheapest part of Europe. I only spent one night in Geneva because I ran out of money, so I went back to Greece. Europe in 1973 was much less sophisticated, much less than it is today. You think about that, that's 30 years after the war, which seems like a long time. But Europe was basically devastated in World War II, and it was still rebuilding. So it was – in Greece, I actually – transported myself back and forth from Athens to various islands on army surplus transport boats because that was the only service they actually had.
0: You go through Pete Marwick and work your way from there into asset management. What was that step? So for me, I was always captured by financial markets. And
1: I had an opportunity to work at Goldman Sachs. And the interesting part about Goldman Sachs at the time was... The accounting profession, you had to be a jack of all trades. You had to be a technician. You had to be a salesman. You had to be a manager of people. You had to be a manager of the client. And frankly, nobody was good at all those things. But that was really what you were required to do. What was really curious to me about Goldman Sachs was, Goldman Sachs allowed people to specialize and they compensated the different specialties equally. So at the partnership level, I mean, if you became a partner, you could be a corporate finance specialist, you could be a sales specialist, you could be a client specialist, you could be a trader specialist. Basically, the compensation was equal, which again, from a behavioral point of view, was very interesting because now you let people gravitate to their greatest skill and you didn't incentivize people who maybe were lesser skilled managers or lesser skilled corporate finance people to try to do that because it paid more because it was all equal pay. And I thought that was fascinating. And I was really interested in joining that company for that reason.
0: And what ended up being your specialty?
1: Well, listen, I had a really fantastic career at Goldman Sachs, because I started off in the fixed income business in the mortgage securities area. And in 1986, Goldman literally had one mortgage trader. He traded government securities, basically Ginny Mays at the time, because there wasn't much else, and no whole loans. There was literally nothing else in the firm. And the firm decided to actually start from scratch and build a mortgage securities business, which they did. They hired 100 people. I would think I was employee number two. They hired 100 people inside of 18 months. So it was, <laughs> you know, number two was interesting. But 18 months later, it didn't matter. But I learned the basic building blocks of finance at Goldman Sachs. Because one of things about mortgages, they're basically cash flows. And the question is, how do you think about the cash flows and the timing of the cash flows, the optionality of the cash flows? And at the time, it was a very interesting time in finance because if you go back in history, in the mid 80s, interest rate swaps had just been invented. And the accounting literature was changing rapidly, almost monthly, where accounting information would come out about how do you account for interest rate swaps, how do you account for tranche securities, how do you account for other new financial inventions that were happening in the marketplace and speed and computers were beginning to actually have an impact on Wall Street if you go back at that time you had things called Quotrons that actually showed you prices there was a ticker tape and now there was a Quotron but we're talking about information or speed of information that in today's world would be Neanderthal I mean it was minutes if not hours and sometimes days as a banker I could actually make an impact on a CEO by calling them on the phone and telling them what their stock price was doing at that moment because they didn't have the same machine. (laughs) And today that would be unthinkable. Of course, they know as much information as I would know. So there were information advantages in the finance world at that time that were being driven by technology 35 years ago that is still happening, but at a much, much faster speed. And that's a key theme because if you think about 1973, I think, 1974, when commissions got deregulated, because commissions were five cents, and they were regulated at five cents. And when that regulation went out, there were thousands of brokers that actually went out of business because they couldn't compete in an unregulated environment. And we have been seeing the cost of transactions drop since that time period, and they're still dropping today. They'll continue to drop. And that theme of information technology information efficiency, speed of access to information continues to affect financial markets as well as the asset management market. And that's a
0: key issue. How did your career then progress through Goldman? So as
1: I said, I was very lucky. I started in the mortgage securities business. Goldman early on decided that they would create a business in investment banking and in the fixed income business, or what was then called the fixed income business. There was a joint venture that focused on financial institutions. They recognized early on that financial institutions had an unusual nomenclature to it, an unusual regulatory environment. And if you really were going to provide service and advice to that industry, you had to understand it. And you had to speak the language, and you had to understand the peculiarities of balance sheets, regulation, and issues that surrounded that. You couldn't call in Procter and & Gamble and Citibank and assume you could have the same conversation. It just didn't work. And of course, as the world got more sophisticated, that became more obvious, but Goldman was early at that. And I was in that group of people that actually serviced financial institutions. That included banks, insurance companies, and asset management organizations. That was a period of about eight years or nine years for me in that environment. And in that nine-year time period, or let's call it 10, because it basically was 1990 to 2000. Many things happened in the United States of America, as well as the world. The most significant thing of which was the change of the interstate banking laws. It used to be that you literally, a New York bank couldn't do business in California, and vice versa. And you had all of these state banking packs. And all of that state banking limitation went away. And when that went away, merger activity exploded. At the same time that that was happening, the asset management business, which was a small business in the 70s, not a large business, started to grow because savings started to grow. And markets, starting in the early 80s, went through a long run of market expansion. And the asset management business started to become a significant provider of liquidity to the street, whereas Wall Street was always an intermediary. But then now you started to see pools of capital that were big enough to actually drive demand and actually drive pricing. And so asset management started to take on a life of its own. And back at that time, Alpha was obviously easier to earn, fewer competitors, much smaller amounts of assets. You know, hedge funds in the 80s and early 90s were, some were large, some might have been multiple billions, but most were less than a billion dollars and produced very attractive returns because they were smaller pools with a lot less efficiency in the markets and a lot less competitors out there.
0: So what was the impetus for you leaving Goldman?
1: So I had a great career at Goldman. I was there almost 24 years. When I took over the investment management division, which wasn't a division at the time that we went there, we formed it basically in 2000 and that's when I went there. I said to the division at the time, look, I'll be the last head of the division that comes from outside of the division. It really didn't make any sense that a division wouldn't be run by somebody who came from the division. And the asset management business looks like a simple business and it doesn't have a balance sheet. It's basically cash in and cash out. But it's basically an extraordinarily complex behavioral driven business because you're humans that are either building machines that are making decisions or humans that are making decisions. And humans are very complex. And not only are they complex, but they're reactions to various different scenarios in the world is different each time because nothing is the same. And so human reaction controlling human reaction, creating processes around human reaction and building a business that's based entirely on human talent, that's a really challenging and complex process. So most people looking at asset management think it's simple. But in fact, it's extraordinarily complex. And as I like to say to people, if it was so simple, every manager would outperform. And we know that that's not the case. (laughs) So it's actually a very complex and challenging business to run. And I was captivated by that. There were two things that drove me. One was the complexity of the human mind and the way humans behave. And going back to my even college years of how do you think about fear and greed and markets and identifying opportunities in markets. And then secondarily, just the fundamentals of investing, like understanding businesses, understanding strategy around businesses, understanding what businesses are going to succeed, what businesses are going to fail, and then how do you take advantage of that through investing. And those two things have been driving me for my entire career in various different ways. And they came together in the asset management business. And that was a great thing for me personally, because I got to do something that intellectually captured. Both sides, both the behavioral side and the sort of quantitative finance side. So why did I leave Goldman? Because you asked me that question. So by 2008, I had been running the division for eight years, which in Goldman terms is usually a pretty long time. And I really wanted to run a public company that was an asset management business, and that was hard to do at Goldman for obvious reasons. So had a great career and was financially secure. So I decided that I would retire in Goldman Sachs words. So so I did retire, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And then the world blew up. I thought the world was going to change. I did not think the world was going to blow up. But it was pretty obvious by early 2008, that there were substantial financial strains. And there already had been changes in large financial institutions. Citibank had replaced their CEO. Merrill Lynch had replaced their CEO. There were significant fissures that you could see. And so I thought it was a good time to leave because there would be change and I could take advantage of that. I didn't think the world was going to blow up, but I sort of had the right idea. Yeah. And you landed? Well, so I really wanted to run the asset management business, but there was not a job that I thought that would be interesting to me. And John Thane, who was a great friend and remains a great friend and who I had a tremendous amount of respect for, was running Merrill Lynch. And he asked me to come to Merrill and ultimately I said yes. And then we had probably the greatest 10 days of my entire career.
0: (laughs) Which were those 10 days?
1: I arrived at Merrill Lynch, I think September, either the 4th or the 7th, I don't remember which. Of 08. Yeah, of 08. And it was a beautiful blue sky day and Lehman was very volatile at that time. Merrill Lynch's stock price was also moving around pretty significantly. I remember the time we had some 90 odd billion dollars of free cash. I tell you that because that 90 went to below 10 within a short period of time, just basically from mark to market, it's not losses. And obviously we had to negotiate a extremely challenging 10 days or so where the world blew up and we sold the firm. And then lucky enough, Alliance Bernstein needed a CEO and they asked me to take that job and that was one of the companies I wanted to run because AB was an unusual combination of three businesses. It was a asset management business with a real investment culture. It was a private wealth business with a solid capability in that space and it was sell-side research business, and I knew all three businesses, and I liked all three businesses, and they were all intellectually interesting to me, and I loved dealing with clients on the private client side. So to me, it was like, if you could build a business for Peter Krauss, that would be the business.
0: And so what was it like stepping in, right? You're in the thick of it in 09, a lot of panic.
1: I came, even worse, I came December of 08. So December 15th of 08, I took the job. It was a Friday, I signed the contract on Friday. I met with the management team on Saturday, And the magic team was a little bit freaked out (laughs) for two reasons. One is that they had a new CEO that they didn't know and didn't come from their business. And I knew that. I knew that would be an issue. I said to them at the time, I said, look, I'm not going to bring people into this company. So my job is to figure out which of you are in the right job and which of you are in the wrong job and to figure out how to promote the best people in the organization because I'm sure that there's enough talent in AB to actually run it. And then I said to them, um, I know you feel like you're in a very stressful situation, but the good news is this company is not levered. It's not going to go out of business. Our earnings are going to go down a lot. Our assets are going to go down a lot, but we'll survive. And having come from a levered world, I knew that was a key issue. And that was not something that I think they really appreciated. And then we set about rebuilding the firm, and it took a lot longer than I thought. I had thought that the business could be stabilized and rebuilt within two to three years. By five years, I had a five-year contract. The business would be back on its feet and growing, and I couldn't have been more wrong. And that's where it really started to dawn on me that there was a disruption in the asset management business, that there was really something going on that was not cyclical, it was structural.
0: And what was that? Historically,
1: These businesses were built on the basis of asset growth. So this is simplifying the business, of course, but large organizations would build many different products, so-called them options. And they would allow the options to be available to the market. And then the market, meaning investors, would have a particular desire. They were worried about interest rates rising. They thought the US stock market was going to grow faster than everything else. They thought that emerging markets were on a tear, whatever their view was at the time. And if you had a manager that was performing well in that environment, you could gather a lot of assets very quickly. So your job as sort of the manager of that business was to create a stable platform and produce returns that were solid but have enough options that you could take advantage of the asset growth. Because the whole motivation of the business, the way the fee structure is set up, with the way portfolio managers are paid, is all based on asset flow and growth. And unfortunately, while we thought that performance-based managers were really based on performance, they weren't either based on performance because their performance fees are based on total return. And total return includes beta or carry. And beta and carry are driven by asset growth. And so if you're getting paid 20% on beta and carry, asset growth times beta or carry times 20% becomes a lot bigger than the alpha piece. And so the whole industry has got this structural problem of growing assets. And the industry never, because up till, call it the mid-80s, maybe even 1990, the industry didn't really struggle with performance that much. So they never really thought about capacity constraints. They never really said, well, gee, I really have a capacity constraint. Everybody in the industry said, well, active is better than passive because active you can actually perform. And nobody said, well, I can't manage the $32 trillion or the $50 trillion in the world. They just said, of course I can. And their models, their financial models drove them to do that. And so at AB, because AB was under such stress – It really gave me an opportunity to say, well, if I had a clean sheet of paper, what would I do? And is this cyclical or is this structural? And I didn't answer that question immediately. I struggled with that for a good four years. I kept thinking that this was a cyclical. Then I kept talking to my CEO colleagues in the industry who all said, well, passive will have its day, and it will be in the fourth quartile, and active will come back. And Plus, you have innovation in the industry. People change all the time and they produce new products and new products create excitement and new products can gather assets. And if you're in the right part of the market, you sort of delude yourself into thinking that this is all about product innovation, selling, and a cyclical process. But it wasn't. It wasn't. And it took me a long time to figure that out.
0: And at what point in time did you sort of draw the conclusion that now, okay, you're sitting at A.B., but the drivers of the business model and the incentives are just wrong for long-term success. There are three epiphanies for
1: me, and I wish that I was smart enough to see them without having to have the experience of realizing you're wrong, but I'm not. And the three experiences were as follows, and they happened pretty much within a year. So first was, hired a manager who was a terrific manager, had a small amount of assets and a great track record, I asked him what his capacity was and he said 25 billion and I looked at him and I knew exactly what he was doing he was calculating number of assets times the fees that he gets times the payout and he liked that number and he said 25 billion and I said to him there's no possible way that you could manage 25 billion with the return stream that you have you're an active trader it's just not possible so we debated back and forth and ultimately, I lost the debate. You know, we agreed on $15 billion, I was at 5 And it was one of those examples where he was in the right place at the right time. And in 18 months, he gathered $12.5 billion. Fabulous financial result. Great for the firm, great for him. Client returns, not so good. And it just drove home the point that these businesses are not aligned with the client. The client accepts history as being predictive of the future, even though every time you see history, it always says history is not predictive of the future, <laughs> but clients accept that because they have no other basis and they accept the bias of financial incentives that drive asset growth as opposed to performance. Yeah. So that was one example, I was one epiphany. Second was I was in a board meeting and uh, one of my board members, who's a terrifically insightful uh, entrepreneur, asked me in the board meeting, she said, if I were a tech entrepreneur in your field, I would regard passive as the perfect product. It's low cost, therefore it's cheap, it's easy to deliver, and it's ubiquitous. Why is that not disrupting you? And I had a five minute diatribe on why that wasn't the case. A couple of days later, I called her on the phone. I said, you know, I was wrong. It is disrupting, and it's disrupting me, and I'm gonna disrupt back. And she said, how? I said, I have no idea. I said, but if I don't, it's just gonna eat me alive. And that was 2016 or 2015 maybe, and that's continued to happen. The third thing was I did a lot of analysis at AB with the information that AB had. AB was a company that's 50 years old. In the asset management business, that's a long time we had a lot of information a lot of data and we were able to use that data to really analyze results and to look at various different ways in which portfolios could be constructed so for example equally weighted portfolios better than the weights that managers pick oftentimes they're much better are concentrated portfolios better than diversified portfolios yes is it a panacea no but on the whole Concentrated portfolios produce better returns, much more volatile. People didn't like volatility, so they would create the diversification because clients didn't like the drawdowns. But in reality, if you're actually producing results, then you would want a more concentrated portfolio. So I became very interested in the market dysfunctions because in the 15, 16 time period, you started to see quantitative models driving trading activity in short time periods. And you could see, obviously, that there were large companies being built around these quantitative activities, short time horizon trades, insurance companies that built VAR models that actually were triggered by certain levels of volatility, and that those activities were having an impact on the marketplace. And the growth of passive was also having an impact because passive was just a simple rule. And think of passive as one manager. It has one rule. I buy everything in the proportion of its market weight to the total. That's all it does. And if there's constant flow into passive, then it constantly applies that rule. The opposite happens when there's constant outflow. So I went to see the SEC and Treasury, and I said, look, at some point, if the markets are large enough in passive – we could have a discontinuous capital markets function. We need price discovery in order to determine pricings. Passive models do not discover prices. High-frequency trading trades around prices, but it doesn't create price discovery. It creates liquidity, but it's not price discovery, it's not determining value. We need to have a level playing field where active managers can compete with passive and get paid for their performance because If they don't, I think over time, active is just gonna continue to lose money, which has been the case and continues to be. Treasury said to me, he said, well, do you have a model that shows where too much passive is too much? And I said, no. I said, do you have one? I said, no. I said, there isn't one that exists. We're not gonna be able to find one, but you know for a fact that there is a tipping point and it's not 100% and we don't know where it is and we shouldn't take that risk. So it was on the basis of that that I started to think that the industry has to change. And the industry has to accept the fact that it needs to be smaller. But in order to pay people what they need to be paid, because you need smart, talented people, you had to change the compensation system. And you had to be able to pay performance in a different way than performance was charged before.
0: So that leads to the formation of Aperture. It does. And why don't you start with... I mean, you've already touched on the core philosophy of what you're trying to achieve. In that
1: thought process over years, I came to the view that capacity was important, but it had to be managed by the portfolio manager, not the management, because the management didn't really have a good view on capacity. The management wasn't managing the portfolio. The management wasn't buying a stock or buying a bond. It was the manager. And the manager is really the only one that knew what the liquidity of their positions were. And they had to be incentivized through some persistent structure that capacity was limited because if they took on too much in capacity, they would not perform. And at the end of the day, that was the only strong incentive that was aligned with the client that was completely absent in the industry and was only applied by some managers who themselves thought that was the case, but the industry itself didn't apply that. So I needed something that controlled capacity. I needed something that controlled risk because if you pay people based on performance, then the clients will ultimately feel like, well, I'm giving an option to the portfolio manager to take risk all the time, and that could be bad for me. So we had to have something that controlled risk. And lastly, I felt that we need to separate it beta from alpha. So there was a price for beta in the market and that price changes over time. We had to adopt a strategy that says, okay, we'll meet that price, including adjusting it over time as that price changes. But if we did that, then we could say to clients, look, you're not paying anything more for the index in this active structure than you do in the passive structure, except you have the option of outperformance. And you only pay for that option when it occurs.
0: So what does that look like in a typical
1: strategy? So let's just take global equity for a second. So number one, the manager is only paid on performance. So constantly, they're concerned about how much capacity can they really run? How much money can they really run? Secondly, we run concentrated portfolios. So that manager has 20 to 25 long positions in a global portfolio. That's concentrated. It's not five or 10, but... 20 to 25 is concentrated. What you learn about diversification as well is that the benefits of diversification continue as you add more and more positions, but it's asymptotic. It becomes significantly less valuable once you're beyond 12 or 15, and 20 to 25, you've gotten 95% of the diversification benefit. Plus, nobody owns one manager, not an institution, not a client, nobody does. And that is another real problem in the industry because people diversify themselves across managers. And when they diversify across managers, they're creating basically an inefficient index. And people don't think about the fact that each manager is trying to diversify their own business. So they have the manager diversifying its business because it wants to for its own commercial reasons. And then the client diversifies itself over multiple managers, and it just ends up with goo at the end of the day.
0: So the manager, in that example, that's got 2025 names, what might a fee structure look like? So for that manager, we charge what the global MSCI ETF
1: charges, which in the United States is 32 basis points. That's the management fee. And then we only charge if the manager beats the index. One of the interesting things about ETFs is that virtually all ETFs, with the exception of U.S. large cap, actually earn less than the index. There's friction cost. Security lending doesn't overcome all the friction cost. You can't always buy all the securities. For example, in high yield, the high yield ETF owns 100 bonds. The actual index owns over 1,000. And so replicating the index is almost impossible. We think that we should be held to beating the index, not the ETF. So we have to actually beat the index. And if we beat the index, then... We charge 30% or whatever that excess is. So by definition, you could never pay more than the performance because the performance is the basis points. We only get a third and it can't by definition happen.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. Thirty-six thousand twenty-five 25, and one. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. As you roll this up into Aperture's business model, why don't you touch on what the business looks like today? Today, we have five managers or will by the end of this year.
1: We have a partner. Generali is our partner. Generali has committed $4 billion of capital to Aperture. One of the things that I wanted to do differently than most launches was, number one, I didn't want to launch a single fund. Lots of folks in the hedge fund world run multi-manager portfolios. It's one single portfolio. I thought that that was taking a little too much risk on because you're very path dependent with regards to that fund, number one. Number two is I wanted clients to be able to decide, do they want global equity? Do they want emerging market debt? Do they want a global long short credit? Where do they want to put their chips, so to speak? And I wanted managers to have a long duration to produce performance because, again, I've been in this business a long time. Managers don't always perform, and you can't expect that they will perform in their first one or two years. And so the capital is allocated for a five-year time period. Now, for five years the manager doesn't perform, then they don't deserve your money. And we think that that's fair time period for the manager and good for the clients that are putting their money in, because again, the manager is not going to be dysfunctional if in year two they're not performing, because they have a long period of time for the seed capital. That's another important element.
0: How did you think about the range of strategies you wanted? I've interviewed, as I counted
1: yesterday, actually, as of today, 292 managers over the last 13 months. I had a strategy of hiring managers that was not driven by strategy, but rather driven by human capital. At the end of the day, I always thought the person was the most important thing. And if we go back to me talking about my career a little bit, I've always been fascinated by the people. So at the end of the day, if I found somebody that I thought was really interesting, really good had a different way of investing that I thought was persistent. That was the person I was going to hire, no matter what the strategy was. And so I don't think anybody would launch their first fund in their company being emerging market debt. But Peter Marber, who is the manager I found, I thought was really an interesting manager in that space doing a really
0: interesting thing. We hired him, and he was the first manager. Are they specifically hedge funds, or long only, or just anything that you find
1: interesting? So this is a bit of a complex answer, but another thing I found in my career is that allowing managers to be unconstrained is far better than constraining managers. Clients constrain managers all the time. I was talking to a client the other day who said, well, you know, if I give you money, then you can only own a certain number of bonds that look like a certain thing. And I basically said to them, look, I appreciate that you have your constraints and your concerns, but I won't manage money on that basis because I'm trying to actually produce a return series that you're looking at to make a decision to hire me, and then you're giving me a set of constraints. that makes it virtually impossible for me to actually create that return series. So that may be okay for you, but that's not okay for me. So we attempt to provide general constraints, meaning it's emerging market debt or it's global equity. But within that, I don't want to say to somebody, you have to have large cap, you have to have small cap, you have to have mid-cap, you have to be in China, you can't be in China. It's basically, you go where the money can be made. Because at the end of the day, I'm trusting that the manager who's spending all day long and all of their life trying to find a return is better at identifying where to put the money than me, because I'm not spending that much time doing that. So number one is each of the portfolios is a low level of constraints around it. That also means that If we want to be short, we can be short, but it recognizes or it has the the following view that shorts can make money, but making money in a short means that the stock goes down when the market goes up. A stock that goes up 5% when the market goes up 10% is not making money. It's performing less than the market. And if you borrow that money and buy a long position that outperforms the market, you are creating returns for clients, but it's financial engineering. It's just taking the client's money and leveraging it and getting paid on the leverage, which personally I reject. I wouldn't say that people don't do it because they do. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily bad, but I don't actually think clients understand that one of the things they're doing in that case is accepting leverage and the risk that comes with leverage, which is very hard to quantify. So we tried to create a constraint around our investing here that you can be short, but you're going to be short stocks or bonds that you think actually go down when markets go up, not just to reduce yeah. volatility. So that gets to the issue of hedge funds, and whether they're credit or equity. So we are trying to disrupt the hedge fund market because the hedge fund market says in the long-short world, I'm gonna deliver to you a beta of less than one, lower volatility. But over time, I'm so good that I'm gonna be able to produce equity market returns or perhaps even better than equity market returns. So over the last 10 years, I've watched hedge funds carefully and I've been invested in hedge funds since, as I said, really the mid eighties. And they've changed dramatically in that time period. One of the problems in the industry today is the short positions first of all, they're not 10 stocks, they're 40 stocks. They're 40 stocks because they have to limit the amount of capital they put in each position because they don't want to get blown up in the short. You can't hate 40 companies. That's impossible. So essentially, you have an inefficient index. You could be short the index, but the client's not going to pay in 2 and 20 if you're short the index. So you are short stocks and you tell the client that I'm creating alpha in those short positions. In general... Across the industry, for long periods of time, last 10 years, there is no alpha in the short positions. So the short positions are really there for the purposes of dampening volatility and taking the beta down. The problem is the hedge fund charges you 20% on the residual beta. So if I have beta of 0.4 and the market's up 10%, I earn 4%, I get paid 20% times 480 basis points, whether I perform or not. Again, that drives me towards growing assets. I think that's wrong. If clients want to pay 20% on the beta exposure or in the carry, in the case of a credit fund, more power to them. But I don't think that's smart. So basically, we're saying to clients, why don't you expose your money to a manager who only gets paid if they beat the index? And stop worrying about what percentage of the index you have exposure to because your portfolio has lots of beta exposure and lots of carry exposure. So rent some of that beta and carry exposure to us at the ETF rate and pay us only if we beat the index. That is the
0: basic portfolio theory of Aperture. Did you try to implement that within Alliance Bernstein before you started Aperture? I did, and we did.
1: So my visit to the SEC and Treasury was as CEO of Aperture, and I believed that it was worth disrupting ourselves, meaning AB, by launching funds that were these performance-based funds. And we did, I think, while I was there, we launched five or six funds. One of the imperfections of doing it at AB, which I've resolved at Aperture, is one of the main drivers of this performance structure and compensation structure is the portfolio manager is really aligned with you, the client. If the portfolio manager is managing 90% of their assets in fixed fees and 10% of their assets in performance, it doesn't actually achieve that. So one of the interesting things I see in the marketplace is large institutions will say to me, well, you know, we get that performance fee structure from other companies. And I say to them, gee, that's really good, I'm glad you do. How much of that portfolio manager's compensation comes from the performance? And the answer invariably is not much. And then I'd say, well, you're a free rider effectively because the company that's giving you that deal is giving you the fee deal you want, but it's because it's an incremental dollar to them. It's not controlling the capacity, which is really what you care about. And it's not incentivizing the manager with your incentives, which is what you care about. You're just getting a fee deal that the headline makes you feel good, but it's not actually achieving what you want. It's not changing the bias of that organization and the bias of that manager. Aperture does that.
0: The structure makes a ton of sense And of course, the devil's in the details. So why don't we dive in on how you go about the process of finding these managers? And you could start with the 292 you met and what that funnel looks like.
1: This is probably, again, one of the things in my career that I've really both learned and enjoyed the most. First of all, I'll basically meet anybody. I don't stand on ceremony. You want to meet with me? No problem. I've learned a little bit about first meetings in... Being able to say, well, okay, that's probably not something I want to do, so I'm a little bit better with my time than I was when I started, but I'm very open-minded. I think that if you come to the party with too many constraints in your mind, you lose the advantage of thinking out of the box. So number one is whether it comes from a headhunter, it comes from somebody I know, it comes from somebody who refers it, it comes from somebody who calls me directly, it comes from somebody at the firm who knows somebody else, however we accumulate, or we just call people and say, we think you're running an interesting strategy. We want to meet with you. It's all of those different things. What I'm essentially trying to do when I'm interviewing these portfolio managers is understand, number one, are they really risk takers? Because oftentimes the managers in the industry are actually not risk takers. They're constructors of an index-like portfolio against an index, they're attempting to build a business, they're more businessmen than they are portfolio managers, and they aren't really comfortable taking risk. Secondly, I'm looking for people that are also strong analysts because I don't want portfolio managers really just an engineer. They take analyst input, they organize it, they weight it, they think about how it looks in a construct, they figure out what their sector exposures are, their country exposures are, their weightings within those. They run the math. They look at their volatility. They look at their risk. They say, OK, that's a reasonable structure and move on. That's not the analyst. That's the engineer. Portfolio manager has to be an engineer, but I also want him to be an analyst. I want to be able to ask them, what is this stock? Why do you own it? Why did you make a mistake with it? For them to be able to answer that question right down to the details.
0: Can I push on that a little bit? You've seen a lot of examples where you have talented analysts that don't end up having the chops to create proper portfolio construction around the relative conviction of their own ideas. So how do you balance the two? It's a very good point and it's a very difficult problem because what I'm leading
1: up to is that the third component of a successful PM is that they're also have trading skills. So you need to be an analyst, an engineer, and a trader. The number of analysts that can become an engineer and a trader is small. The ability to identify an analyst who actually can be successful being the trader and the engineer is very difficult to the point where it's hard to take the risk. I have done it, but it's hard to take that risk and you need some proof of concept. So I think the challenge that analysts have is they've spent most of their career getting really deep on a particular company, set of companies, bonds, structures, whatever. They concern themselves to some extent of when I buy it and when I sell it because they have price targets. But the interdependencies of the different ideas and the interdependencies of the different ideas with the market and the impact that that has on the total portfolio as it relates to an index is a challenge. It's a different challenge than they're used to not something that they've thought about. Now, they're smart people, they can learn it, but there's also an instinct to it. There's a feel to this. You can construct portfolios with quantitative methodologies. So for example, let's just be very simple. We can say, we're gonna have 20 stocks and we're gonna make them all equal weighted. And if the equal weights get beyond 5% up or down, we're gonna adjust. That's actually a portfolio construction technique that works. However, you still have sector biases, you still have country biases, you still have factor biases. So now you have to learn, how do I think about the sector, the factor, the country in an equity portfolio? Or if you're in a fixed income portfolio, you've got duration risk, and you've got yield curve questions, and you have country, and you have sector, and you have industry. So you're not used to, as the analyst, taking all those things into consideration and weighting them, and where's the experience of understanding what the correlation risks are amongst and between those? And how do you think about that? And then finally, how do you react? So finally, the portfolio is constructed, it's behaving, and then it starts to misbehave. What's your next move? How do you deal with that? Those things are not subject to quantitative analysis. They really need to be driven by an understanding of the portfolio itself, an understanding of the market, and then you have to make a judgment as to what direction the market is moving, because momentum is gonna drive those trades one direction or another. So it's not to say that quants don't do this, because they do. And it's not to say that it can't be successful in quantitative works, because it has been. But we tend to look at the world fundamentally through human eyes, where quantitative analysis is a tool rather than a driver. And I'm looking for somebody that can actually integrate all those things. And that's why it's hard to go from an analyst to a PM.
0: So when you're screening through potential PMs for Aperture... Do you tend to look at portfolio managers that are more experienced so you can dive into examples of that? Or are you looking at someone who's been a very successful analyst who your intuition is telling you they have the chops to be able to trade and be a portfolio manager? So I've looked at both, and I've actually hired both,
1: interestingly enough. The fellow that runs global equity technically had not been a portfolio manager, although he managed his position with portfolio manager skills. And actually, he ran a portfolio for us on Bloomberg and our Bloomberg system for, I think, 13 or 14 months. It was very interesting about that. This goes to allocating capital to managers. So in the industry, just take a basic simple situation. You've got a financial advisor. You meet with your financial advisor, and your financial advisor says, we're going to buy manager A. What's the reason for that? Well, his three-year performance is really good. Or maybe his five-year performance is really good. And that's about the only part you listen to. And then he goes on with all the other things that he has to say. But ultimately, it's just based on historical performance. So we're very tied to looking at history. And it's the agency risk in us that is a huge bias in our willingness to invest capital. We have to see experience. Because if you invested without experience, people would say that's silly. And that's a human trait. That's actually fair. It's not an unfair thing. But – Experience has its own bias associated with it, and escaping that bias is also a challenge. So with regard to this one person that I did hire, I actually watched him perform. And when you watch somebody perform, meaning they tell you why they're buying something, what the thesis is, why they're weighting it that way, why they're selling something, then you can actually see, does that play out? And more importantly, you can see when it doesn't, how they react. Do they rationalize the position? Do they say, well, yeah, I said that, but I think this now? That's not very appealing. Or do they say, "Yep, that's what I thought. I was wrong. I sold it. That's much more appealing. So you can have those conversations with managers who have experience, and you can ask them those questions, and they will give you those answers, but you're not seeing it real time. When you see it real time, there's a much higher level of conviction that that's a manager that you want to invest in.
0: How does that recruiting process work where, on the one hand, as you hire someone, they want to manage money? On the other hand, this is an example of you said, well, they're running a shadow book for 13 months. How do you bring those different people in and convince them to come? I think that
1: this is one of the interesting things in the industry. The revenue model itself is if you're a manager that can perform, your compensation at Aperture is significantly better than any place that you're at because you earn on less capital, more money than you would in the long-only space and even in the hedge fund space. So for those people who actually believe they can perform and have a history of performing, this is kind of like emancipation because they're not on the road all the time trying to raise assets. They don't turn themselves into a salesperson. They focus on performing and they actually get paid for their results. They know they're not going to perform every year, so they're prepared in some years not to make any money. So they have to understand that. And that also, understanding that person, finding that person is also interesting. I had a CEO tell me, one of the big companies, said, "We well, never get a good manager. And I said, why is that? He said, well, because good managers know that they don't perform. And so I said, so what are you telling me? I'm not going to get a good manager because – the managers I'm not going to get are people that know they're not going to perform and aren't willing to actually <laughs> bet on their performance. Guess what? I don't want that manager. I'm actually trying to figure that out when I talk to people. Are you really a risk taker? Do you really get it? Because if you really are a risk taker and you believe in what you can do and you have done it, we launched a fund this week in Europe called uh, European Equities. He was at J.P. Morgan for 12 years. I think 17 years. He ran a portfolio for 12 years. His cumulative average performance was 800 and some odd basis points. He's so excited about the opportunity at Aperture because now with far less money, he could earn far more than he did at J.P. Morgan. And he can consistently say to his clients, I'm on your side. I don't have to convince you that I'm not an asset gatherer. I don't have to convince you that I'm really fighting for
0: you. As you go through that diligence process, you've laid out a really nice set of analyses of what it is you break down in the process of how a manager goes about what they do. I wonder if you can walk through. One of the things I'm also really interested in is idea origination.
1: Why is idea origination important? Well, if I'm fishing in the same pond that everybody's fishing in, It obviously lowers the probability that I'm going to find something that's different. If I'm fishing in a pond that's bigger or different, I have a much higher probability I'm going to find something that's not a crowded trade that may actually be interesting. So I'm very interested in how managers source ideas. What I find is 90%, maybe 85% of the managers source things pretty much the same way. They have some kind of a screen process that identifies a large universe and brings it down to a smaller universe. And then they start to actually think about what they want to spend time on. But sometimes I find managers that are really comprehensive readers, and they read all kinds of literature outside of the box literature. They have thematic views, and that leads them into a growth industry or a growth segment. And they start to think about like what are the elements of that growth segment. And they're good at thinking about value add propositions. So they think about a value chain. You start with A, you go to Z. Okay, well, between A and Z, there's some things like Q and R that aren't very interesting, but there's some businesses like B and S that are fascinating. And that actually are leverageable beyond that value chain. So I'm going to go look at those industries. Okay, that's a manager that's thinking out of the box. They're not just doing a screen and looking at financial results. Because at the end of the day, we talked about this earlier, information has become available to many more people at much faster speed. And if all you're looking at is the same information everybody's looking at, you're just not going to produce a return. But if you're thinking about your universe strategically and you're thinking about, well, look, I think. B is really an interesting company or in an interesting area of that value chain. That value chain is growing. Now I can project with greater probability that B is actually going to grow faster than the value chain, and it's going to do something else. Then I've got some reason to actually get interested in B and find out if it's the management team I like, if it's got the operating leverage I think is interesting, where is the company structured. And now those elements of decisions that I make have greater leverageability to the stock price than you do if you're just looking at a financial screen. So- I look for people to think about originating ideas that way, not just in stocks, but also in the fixed income space. Track record is important, but more important is how people describe their failures. Everybody can describe their successes. And as somebody once said, I love this phrase, you know, you're never a villain in your own narrative. So, so. When are you the villain and how do you describe that? How objective are you? Self-awareness and objectivity in an investor is another critical element. The ability for investors to be self-aware is I think quite challenging because they have significant egos. And when they're successful, they tend to undermine their self-awareness. They tend to believe in what they're doing and they become sometimes blind to where they're at. In particular, if you're making a lot of money at that time period, it's self-reinforcing. So humility, self-awareness, being able to be the villain in your own narrative, recognizing that, those are critical characteristics. So talking to people, it's not so much about looking at their performance track record, but how do they talk about it? And do they understand the details of it? Can they recognize what happened in underperformance in a certain year or outperformance in a certain year? And some people tell me, listen, I really outperformed, but I just got it right and I got lucky. That happens. I got it right and here's what I did and here's why I did it and it happened again here and it happened again here. Okay, that's interesting. I got it wrong. Here's how I got it wrong. I believed in this bond. I thought this was thought this was a good trade. I completely missed the fact that the central bank was going to do X. I should have seen it, didn't see it, cost me money. I learned. That's also good. But the rationales of, well, you know, I generally buy this factor, but it was a growth reversion or is a momentum change or factor shift, I have no interest in that. That's just a manager who's exposed to factors, and you can buy that for 35 basis points, and I'm not interested in that manager. Then values are important to me. At the end of the day, everybody's a human being here, and humans are, as I said before, complex. Nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody in the company here is perfect. And we all have biases and mistakes. So what's your value system around how you take criticism and how you listen to others? I was with someone yesterday who said, well, the reason why you're in the room, Krause, is because I know you'll tell me I'm wrong. Okay, so that's a mind that says, I want to be told I'm wrong. Whether I agree with you or not, it's a different question, but I want that input. There's lots of people in the world that don't want to hear that. That's just not what they want to hear. They rely on their own instincts, their own views of the world. I find that the best investors are people that have a value structure where they actually value other people's input. That doesn't mean they talk to everybody, but they find people who actually are different than them that have a different point of view, and their value system will actually support that. That's important in building teams because some managers build teams that are just functionally taking orders go look at that, go look at this, give me the details, I make the decision. Managers should make the decision, but the manager needs to have a value structure where they actually are interested in what the analyst is telling them from the point of view is they could change their mind. They could actually move their perspective. One, you'll get better people underneath you, and two, you'll have a much better answer. Three is, on the value side is, are you willing to run a team where you compensate people for their real input and you make them a part of their team or at the end of the day do you think you're the only one making the decisions and if somebody pushes you on compensation you just let them leave? I don't want that person. So, you have to discover how people run teams and how they think about that. And by the way, managers are perennially bad man- people managers. I mean, that's not what they do. They're introverted They're not very outgoing. They're highly analytical, and the people around them are exactly the same. (laughs) So how do a bunch of introverts actually interact effectively? That's a challenging structure, a challenging situation. Again, trying to understand how does a manager do that. Then managers have to be able to evaluate their own people and fire their own people if they don't work, because at the end of the day, you're not going to pick everybody that's going to work. Even Aperture, I'm going to pick people that aren't
0: going to work, and I need to to be able to figure that out. There's so much depth into these layers of assessments of the people and how they're managing the team and how they're going through the process and how they're trading. How much time do you spend with one of your managers before you decide whether you want to make them an offer to come? So I've been calculating that. I spend personally an average of about 30 hours. And
1: then other people in the company will spend cumulatively probably another 10 hours, maybe 15 so, again, that's a lengthy period of time. It's not huge, but that most allocators would never spend anywhere near that much time with a person. It's a little bit like uh, concentrated investing. You know, if you get to spend more and more time with people, you have a better chance of actually getting the judgments about the people right. I had this epiphany as a banker. I said to myself one day, you know, I've been calling on you for 10 years. You're the CEO of some company. I've known you for a long time. Okay, you've known me for a long time, but you think about it. Over 10 years, maybe I see you four times a year for an hour. Okay, so that's 40 hours over 10 years. That's not so long. <laughs> so, so I've known you over a long time period, but I don't know you that well. Again, it's the intensity of time over the time period to actually get to understand the human being. And what are your aspirations for the business? My big aspirations for the business not being small-minded about it, is that we change the industry. We actually get allocators of capital to recognize that they're choosing from a pool of managers who have a bias towards growing assets, which undermines the performance that the allocator is trying to achieve. And that as the allocator, as the owner of the asset, you need to demand that the managers change their business structures. And we're trying to show people that it is possible to run a high quality asset management organization with global talent that's at the top of the class producing returns with a different fee structure.
0: Well, how can one of these prospective managers find you? Well, that doesn't seem to be a challenge, but it's peter
1: at (laughs) apertureinvestors.com. So that's not a hard email either. I'm happy
0: to talk to anybody, as I said before. All right, let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Well, my wife and I have
1: been avid collectors of contemporary art for 40 years, and I'd say that that has gone from an interest to a hobby to perhaps even an addiction. <laughs> we go all over the world. We look at art pretty much every weekend. There's an interesting aspect to this, at least I think it's interesting. The investing process is a creative process, and art is a creative process. And trying to understand art as a creative process and as a nomenclature, because artists have a nomenclature, and the question is, can you read it and understand it, is I think where the intellectual interest for me lies. And I've had some really interesting experiences over the 40 years. For example, sometimes there's an artist that I look at or we look at, because my wife and I's rule is we both have to like it, and we hate it. Literally hate it, active hate. And I've learned that active hate is actually as good a reaction as I love it because it's moving you. It's actually having an emotional impact on you. you know, if you look at something and say, eh, it's interesting, maybe, yes, okay, fine. You, you can pass that. But if you actively hate it, it's really having an impact, you really have to think about it. The part about collecting that I like the most is trying to push myself into an area of discomfort because you tend to buy things that become familiar to you because I know that, I feel comfortable buying it, the image makes me feel good. Okay, so that's like a consistency, but it also narrows your vision. So going back to the idea of origination, how do you think out of the box? How do I find things that actually disrupt me? And how do I stay current in what's thinking? Another view of art is that art is essentially a set of iconic images that are reflective of the time that you're living in. Some artists will capture that. Most artists will not. So if you can find a way through time of collecting artists that capture the iconic imagery of the moment, and if you've been collecting over 40 years, that's actually pretty interesting. Now that's a big statement. Can you achieve that? Maybe not. One of my best friends, who's the director of one of the museums in New York, said to me, you know, it could be pretty depressing. You could be living in a time period in which artists just aren't any good. (laughs) I said, yeah, I can't do much about that. And that could be true. That could literally be true. What's your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve is that, in general, I see people over time in my life giving others the benefit of the doubt less often. And maybe it's because I was just younger and the people around me were younger that there wasn't this sort of prejudice of a view. But in today's world, the number of times in which people with disparate points of view give themselves the benefit of the doubt has really shrunk to almost immaterial. And I think that's sad. That's not just a U.S. issue. That's a global issue. So my pet peeve is that people should ask themselves, am I giving you the benefit of the doubt? Why am I just jumping to a conclusion that you mean X? I don't even ask you. It's kind of a crazy thing. But if someone says something to you and you kind of take it the wrong way, do you say to them, I missed it, what were you getting at? Or do you just walk away going, that guy's a jerk? And too often people are walking away going, that guy's a jerk and living in their own world. How do you use social
0: media, both personally and
1: professionally? Personally, I'm a Neanderthal. I've learned a little bit, but professionally, Aperture has been an eye opening experience. We thought out of the box. The head of our client business came from the music industry, so it had nothing to do with this world. But we had a view that the financial industry was not making itself available in a personalized way to the end client that you met or listened to financial professionals in sort of a stilted professionalized selling methodology You either being sold something like the financial advisor was selling you something or it was kind of a stilted academic paper kind of delivery we think we're building real intellectual capital inside of aperture and we wanted to offer that intellectual capital to our clients, our prospective clients, in a way that they could understand it. And so I like to say we're sort of the Netflix of the asset management business. We offer you content where you want it, when you want it, and how you want it. And it could be in the palm of your hand. It could be you know, on your computer. Or it could be wherever you want to read it. This year, I don't know if you know this, could it just happened recently. Simon Thorpe, who runs our credit business, is the number one influencer in the finance business at LinkedIn. I think that's a pretty big deal. Aperture's got a pretty big footprint. And why? Because Simon, who is, if you asked Simon, would have told you a year ago, are you kidding? Didn't even use social media. Because he's genuine. Because we're delivering the person as a person. We're not delivering them as a quote-unquote finance financial professional. Simon's in his shirt and sweater in front of the Bloomberg with his finger pointing and talking for 90 seconds about an issue that's interesting to him. And that resonates, that
0: connects with people.
1: That's the next step of interacting with investors in a way where they get to know the person actually is running their money.
0: And is he doing that through sharing research or just observations day to day? He makes
1: observations day to day on his own views of the market and his own investments. He makes two to three videos, 90 seconds each a week. They're posted on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And LinkedIn does this influencer thing, and they rated him number one in the world.
0: What do you do for self-growth?
1: I read a lot. I read history a lot. I read about biographies, people, but I also read about historical, political, and financial, and economic history. I do believe that History rhymes, doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Geography matters. It's not an immaterial thing. And it helps me reflect on my own mistakes. You know, I try to analogize between things that I've done and things that I read about and where did I go wrong or how could I have done something better. I don't read the self-help or the business stuff. I really read actual history because I think it's through the history that I find the rich context that is easier to analogize to what I'm living in today as opposed to there are the 10 points of success. That doesn't make that much sense to me. I try to read literature, but I'm not very good at that. I went back and read 1984 last year. I mean, I think I read 1984 in high school, so so, so you can't say that I ever read it. Chilling, depressing, fascinating because at the time it was written, if you think about – Post World War II in the UK, when he wrote that book and what he said, fascinating, really fascinating.
0: What teaching from your parents has
1: most stayed with you? My mother said to me, never have any regrets. And that's a key element in my career decision making. Great.
0: All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? It's never as good as it seems, and it's never as bad as it
1: seems. (laughs) I think if I'd known that when I was 18
0: might have been a little easier on myself (laughs) great Peter thanks so much really enjoyed it yeah me too thanks so much thanks for listening to this episode I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life if you'd like what you heard please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes you'll help others discover the show and I thank you for it have a good one and see you next time This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. A manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Alligators.